Here we are with another episode of Startups for the Rest of Us. I'm your host, Rob Walling, and each week on this show, we cover topics related to building and growing startups using an ambitious yet a sustainable approach. We are not willing to sacrifice our health or our relationships to grow a company. We want to build real businesses with real customers who pay us real money. Welcome back. Thanks for joining me again this week. I had a great conversation with the CEO and co-founder of Squadcast. His name is Zach Moreno, and we'll dive into that in just a few minutes. Squadcast is at squadcast.fm, and they are the highest fidelity recording available in a web browser to have two, three, four people remotely meet and record high quality audio and now video, which they just launched and we talk about it in the show. It's the tool that this podcast has been recorded on for, I think it's close to two years, 18 to 24 months at some point, you know, we switched to Squadcast and, and we've never looked back. In fact, when we switched, our editor said, what did you do differently? Your audio sounds so much better this week and it records in multiple tracks. It's just an, an audio editor's dream. And of course, it is part of, you know, what increased the production value of this very show. And one fascinating part of Squadcast story is how they 10x'd their revenue from 2019, where they were doing low six figures until 2021 when Shelter in Place happened. Uh, they 10x'd. And Zach talks about how they passed 3 million in ARR just a few months ago. As a effectively, a, they were bootstrapped until. Just about a year ago, they took funding from us, from Tiny Seed, which is obviously not a tremendous amount of money. I mean, it's still a mostly bootstrap company, especially compared to their revenue and growth. And it's just a, a really fascinating story. We'll dive into that in just a second. Before we get there, I received an email and I have to anonymize it because he gives all types of awesome numbers. He says, hey, Rob, I wrote you last year asking about advice if I should take out a $20,000 loan to pursue my software application. You advised me not to. I didn't take the loan. I took on consulting work and got my finances in order. And I slowly pushed for updates and improvements when I had time. And I just sold it for 25 times annual recurring revenue. I won't go through all the numbers. He actually asked me to keep them confidential. But the amount of money that he sold it for, I'll just say it's mid five figures. Given that he lives in Eastern Europe, he said it's about two years of runway for him. It's been truly a life-changing occurrence. And he said, I really wanted to share this with you since I really appreciate all your insights and just wanted to let you know how many lives you're impacting. He also wrote, I wanted to say thanks a ton for asking those questions on episode 532 with John Warlow. That interview helped me start higher than I would have felt comfortable with my negotiation. Ultimately, I achieved a purchase price far beyond what I thought I could achieve. Thanks so much for all you do for all of us SaaS founders. Bravo, sir. Thank you so much for writing in. I love hearing success stories like this because this is what it's really about, right? It's about impacting other people. It's, it's the freedom for you know each of us, freedom for me to work on what I want, the purpose of, of helping other people be able to achieve what they want. And then it's the relationships, both the super close relationships I have, and then even the further away relationships with the person who wrote in here, who I, I believe we never met in person, but it doesn't matter. It's like you can have an impact on people, whether it's through building your software product and info product, putting yourself out in the world, starting a podcast, writing an essay, you, know, you can have a lot of impact. And so thank you so much for writing in. I really appreciate that. And if you do have a success story about how startups for the rest of us or MicroConf or myself have helped you, of course, just write in anytime. I always love to share them. And I do keep them in a file or in a label in my email because I can go back through and it reminds me just how worthwhile this work is and just how worthwhile helping other people is. 
Speaking of helping other people, I hope today's interview with Zach Moreno from Squadcast is inspiring and also can give you a few ideas or strategies or tactics that you can use to improve your business. So let's dive in. Zach Moreno, thanks so much for joining me on the show. Appreciate it, Rob. Yeah, it's great to have you here. I'm sure folks heard in the intro that you are the co-founder and CEO of Squadcast. You're also the the initial dev who wrote all the code, and you guys are you guys are killing it. I mean, you're doing really really well. You know, I think part of that we'll dig into a little bit is the you know shelter in place orders certainly encouraged folks to try to figure things out remote that maybe they were they were doing in person before. But to set the stage, what are you able to share in terms of your revenue, your customer count, just to give folks an idea of, of how big your business is? Thank you for saying that, by the way. The uh, large part of that is due to Tiny Seed, so really grateful there. And the revenue, I think a few months ago, we cleared a huge milestone of, of uh, 3 million annual recurring revenue. We're a of course, a SaaS business, and I think north of 13,000 customers. So that's very humbling and an honor to help serve so many podcasters creating content remotely. Absolutely. I mean, that's a, it's a heck of a business to have built. You know, I think you've, you've said publicly in, in other shows and other interviews that you were in the low six-figure ARR almost 18 months ago, maybe two years ago, and it's a big jump. And, you know, again, we'll cover that in this show. I think that the number one question that, that a lot of people probably have is, you entered this space, which is remote podcast recording, studio quality. There was already an existing solution that worked relatively well at the time. It's called Zencaster. It's what we used to record this podcast on. And at a certain point, I switched because Zencaster, there was a bunch of things. There's audio tracking and, and how it the two tracks get out of sync because it does client side something or other. I just, my editor kept saying like, these tracks are kind of messed up. And then they, they started having outages back in, I forget if it was 2019, but I went out and looked for another solution, which I had done originally. And back when I started using Zencaster, there were no other solutions. But when I then did a, a Google search or whatever, I found, I was like, wait, Squadcast, there's like a competitor. This is amazing. But you have essentially, I mean, in my opinion, you have, you know, as I said, growing very quickly. And, and I see you as the visionary. I see Squadcast as the, the market leader in this point, in essence. So how did you possibly come into a space where there was already an existing leader and essentially figure out how to get traction in that space? Yeah, it actually gave us quite a bit of pause. We had started working on Squadcast because of a pivot from a remote podcast that we wanted to do. And we started building. And then I think a few months in, we actually found Zencaster and actually gave us quite a bit of pause. And we're like, oh, crap, like, I don't want to spend or waste my time or the team's time or anybody's time building something that already exists. I want to work on solving, you know, new challenges and do them in unique ways. So that actually kind of gave us some pause. But we did our research and found that there was a ton of reliability concerns. There was the, you know, audio drift kind of timing issues that you brought up. And it just kind of seemed like while it was the state of the art for a period of time, it seemed to really fail to evolve. And podcasters that we talked to, OG podcasters, new podcasters alike, people in the community were really big on listening, it uh, became very clear to us that nobody was very satisfied or happy with the results. It was just kind of the only option. It was either that or like Skype back then. I'll give Zencaster credit for for being better than Skype, but I think it's I think it's a failure to evolve in a number of different ways. And you know, Squadcast, we've we've rebuilt the thing a few different times. We've tried a lot of different ways of how we can deliver both quality and reliability, like every time. So there's a lot of 
kind of unique technical challenges that go into that that um, may seem on the surface like straightforward challenges to overcome, but are real technically challenging. And that has led to two patents pending, one of them for how we upload, how we record and upload. We call that progressive upload, or you can think of that like as a cloud autosave. And then the other is a solution to the uh, audio drift that you mentioned. Um, We have a process to normalize that. So we save people time in post-production. Other things like automatic backups or, you know, key differentiators that uh, were innovations. Yeah, and I I think that's something for folks to take away, uh, you know, as you're listening to this is entering a space with a market leader or even just a crowded space is totally doable under certain circumstances. Well, there's certain if you raise buckets of money, you can at least take a take a go at it. If you're an experienced founder, maybe you've had exits or successes in the past, this is where you can you can push into these. Or if you find an angle, if you find that wedge, which is some things that people hate about that competitor or about the competitors in general. And that was what we did with Drip, where we found out that Infusionsoft was this tool. A lot of people didn't like it. A lot of complaints online, on Twitter, in forums, in Facebook groups. And it was like, well, we kind of pivoted into that space. We weren't building marketing automation. We were just building basic email capture and emailing. And then we realized, wow, there's a real opportunity here. That when when Derek Reimer was talking about building a competitor to Calendly that is now Savvy Cal that he's having a great traction with. Big fan. Yep. We use it here at Tiny Seed. And, and a big part of that conversation was, what it, what's your angle? What's your innovation? And we know it's not just building a better product. You have to do that. And then you have to market and position and, and communicate it. And the same like with DocSketch with Ruben, Ruben Gomez. It was, you know, of course, we can all, any of us could clone HelloSign in a couple months with some engineers. But like, how do you then get traction beyond it? And it's figuring out what people don't like about it and getting those traffic channels. So it's sounds like you took a piece of that. You fixed some things that you know perhaps were broken with an existing solution, and then you innovated in addition to that. But beyond that, just building the product, I don't think would have done it, right? What, what else was there? Yeah, I mean, I think a big part of it is our, our branding and our position. Like design is a really core competency in our team and super proud of Alex and the design team for really establishing a, a high bar there when it comes to the experience for podcasters and their guests on Squadcast. There's a whole bunch of kind of UX things that need to get right with all the different complexities of, if you think about a guest for a podcast, they're essentially expected to be a podcaster for like an hour and they don't really have the the context, the background of how to do that, um, equipment, uh, permissions, all that stuff. So how do we make it just as easy for them while providing like a really powerful set of tools for remote content production on the creative side. So the balance there was something else that I, I would I would credit, you know, as an innovation. Like we we also from our beta, we had video of the conversation. So you could have body language and eye contact and there's a, a whole large part of communication that is nonverbal. So that was another area that some people prefer the video, some people don't. It's all good. It's a setting. We just felt like we wanted to make the conversation on Squadcast as close to reality as possible. And uh, we do that in a a bunch of different ways, like with kind of real-time presence, so you can actually see your guest's microphone, what equipment they're using, their network connection. All of these little things add up to building confidence that you are going to record, you know, quality content and that you can just kind of stop worrying about the technology not getting you to where you want to go. You're always going to get that file at the end. So that's really, I think, a core to our approach here. 
Yeah, it, you do have a unique challenge, you know, that you, you called out there where some guests are podcasters for one hour. And so, you know, I, I have a guest or two a month and... Luckily, many of mine have done podcasts before, but there are some who have not, you know, and I need to say, hey, can you get a headset or a USB microphone? Because we're not recording on your onboard laptop mic. And then when they come on, you, meaning Squadcast, has to guide them along, handhold them in a way that feels, that makes me look good. Because if Squadcast or, you know, whatever solution I'm using screws up, it reflects poorly on me. It makes me look unprofessional. So you have a big, that's a big responsibility. Yeah, and that wasn't super clear to us when we first started, but we learned pretty quickly that like this is a a brand asset. Why does quality matter? We not only need to communicate that to our customers, but if their guest is like, well, why don't we just record this on Zoom? You know, some percentage of podcasters will be like, okay, let's do that. But, you know, what we do is try to communicate to the guest and everybody, why does quality matter? It reflects on your brand. It reflects on your credibility. There's a study from USC that uh, directly correlates the, the quality of the content to the credibility of the people in the conversation. So all of these things, we work to communicate to the guest in a way that's not really invasive and tries not to, you know, be too involved as they connect and record on Squadcast. And your your co-founder Rock told me, I think this is this is vague, so maybe flesh this out. But my memory was in the early days, as you guys, let's say twenty eighteen, twenty nineteen, as you were trying to get traction, you would attend in person events, and you were out there in I'll put the community in quotes. And then maybe I, I presume that's Facebook groups and forums, but also in person stuff, so, such that people kind of saw you everywhere. Is that relatively accurate? Yeah, I, I don't know that we quite got to everywhere status, but we sure tried and still do to this day, like involvement in the community. And I love to say that, you know, podcasters speak eloquently for a living and it's our job to listen and be very active listeners to what it is that they need and uh, try to keep that feedback loop as tight as possible. So being in the, the Bay Area in California is a very robust, diverse community of podcasters and content creators the narrative in podcasting is very East Coast centric. I'm not exactly sure why that is, but uh, Oakland and San Francisco is is a huge epicenter as well, as is LA. So we use that to our advantage. So when we, and online to your point, so there's a, a, an active community on, on different Facebook groups, different in-person events. So that's some really great advice. When we first co-founded Squadcast, I was also, I was holding down a day job for the government. I was, uh, I had committed to teaching at UC Berkeley for a night class and I was getting married and had the idea for Squadcast. So part of that was uh, one of my students at at Cal Berkeley happened to be like involved with uh, Intel's venture capital fund in the Middle East and was taking this course to kind of brush up on his technical prowess. And he really pushed us over coffee one day to to really get out of our comfort zone, launch in beta way sooner than we were comfortable with and really put our money where our mouth was and go and sponsor the largest conference in the podcast community. And that's podcast movement. Thankfully, that was in Anaheim in LA that year. And we could drive. My best friend's mom got us a hotel room and like we just put ourselves out there. And I was super, we, we were all very anxious. I was like writing code in the car there and before, during, after all that stuff. And 
and it was barely an alpha kind of product. But um, we learned within the first five minutes of the event kind of starting that somebody came up and told me like, I, I came to this event looking to solve this problem that you all are uh, working on. And that just was amazing to me because it was a real sink or swim moment for us. And I'm really grateful that that worked out. Yeah, that's that capital efficient, scrappy bootstrapper, right? Mentality of you don't have 2 million in venture capital to, to throw your own launch party. So you just figure out, you drive down somewhere. I'm sure you guys didn't sleep much and, and spent a bunch of time hustling. Yeah. And nobody knew who we were either. So we were very nervous that we didn't have any street cred in the podcast community. Like, what are people going to think? Like the downside could have been, we would just like dropped a couple thousand dollars and then we were just like standing in this booth with nobody talking to us for a couple days. So you know, thankfully that didn't happen. We met our founding advisor, Harry Duran there. We got our first customer and our first revenue there. It was just astounding, like surpassed all expectations. Yeah, it sounds like it. Some of those, this asymmetric risk, if you think about it, where the risk was that you wasted a weekend and obviously some money, you know, with the sponsorship, but the benefits far, far outweighed that. Those are the gambles we have to take. And I'm really grateful that that, that first customer, uh, Gina, is still with us today. So that's pretty cool, too. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah, cool. And, you know, you and I both mentioned your co-founder, Rock, quite a few times. And you are the kind of, yeah, I'll just say the developer side of it, right? I mean, you do a lot of the coding and managing of, of the technical side. And Rock does, you know, I know a lot, a lot more on the sales and, and internal operations, that kind of stuff. I'm curious... It's a weird question because I guess if you say yes, you're like throwing rock under the bus. But like you've only done this with a co-founder. What would it have been like to try to do it on your own? Do you think you would have made it? I don't think I would have started, to be frank. I had a list of one for potential co-founders. Also, Rock had introduced me to podcasting as a listener back in like high school and college. So that was something where I had some degree of hope that he would agree to to go on this journey and be a, a key part in it. But at the same time, I mean, he's got his job, he's got his life, all that stuff. And it's it's a really big ask to say, hey, let's do this 10 year plus journey together and put it all on the line to revolutionize content production. That's a bit audacious of an ask. So I'm really grateful that, uh, you know, Rock and I thankfully had a a relationship, you know, a strong foundation in trust as longtime friends. And I also knew that our skills complemented each other, but there wasn't like a ton of overlap. But he understood enough about technology. I understood enough about like finance and business, but each of us had a focus in those areas. So it's this real symbiotic relationship with that foundation in trust that I think has led to a really, really great partnership. And it's hard for me to imagine doing this without without Rock. And you know, again, as a developer, normally what I see is if you have a, a developer and a non-developer co-founder relationship, that it's the non-developer who is CEO and the developer is usually gets titled like CTO or something else. In this case, you are the CEO. How did that come about? I, I, I literally, I'm not sure I've ever seen that actually. Well, what you described was what I wanted. I'm a reluctant CEO, I'll put it. And I was essentially trying to convince Rock, trying to see if there's another way and the team just continued to lift me up and say, no, we think it should be you. You should be the CEO. You're the one with the vision and you're the one who had this, uh, this initial idea. 
And also I've met enough engineers in my time where I can understand how that would be kind of a, a non-starter for a lot of engineers because of like communication skills and putting yourself out there and getting up on stages and recording with interviews and all this stuff. These are all things that are kind of assumed as part of the role of CEO. And I just, I know enough engineers to know that there's not a lot of people who would be comfortable with that. So I'm really grateful that I've built up uh, comfort with public speaking and writing and all the different things that are really key kind of soft skills to being a successful CEO. But those were learned skills. That's not something that's intrinsic to me. Um, anybody who knows me from way back, you know, I had depression and social anxiety disorder and uh, was very much focused on like my fine art career and all of those other things way back when. So I think, you know, 16 year old Zach would be looking at me now, like what the hell happened? So that's a big part of it as, as well as rock and I discussed openly that we learned pretty quickly through research and studying startups as first time founders, we wanted to be students of startups and really understand where things can go wrong, where things can go right. And it became very clear to us that the, the reason leadership in startup kind of has turnover or changes hands or anything like that, um, it can happen for a number of reasons, but it seems like the biggest reason is like failure to evolve with the company. The company kind of can uh, evolve at a rate that the leadership doesn't. And that can be a big barrier. So I think that's like on on a day-to-day -day or month-to-month -month time horizon, that's what Rock and I focus on is just making sure that we are evolving at the the pace of the company and that we're not going too too fast and that the company is not going faster than us and trying to maintain that speed. We also make a lot of decisions together. And in some sense, there's kind of shared roles there, like uh, some, some co-CEOing going on. And I've asked Rock since making this decision, like, you sure? You know, like, do you, do you want this? And, you know, maybe I should be the CTO as well, because I essentially have two titles. I'm the CEO and the CTO. And I just have two calendars and I schedule time for CTO. I schedule time for CEO. And that is weird. That's taken some time to get used to. But I'm also really grateful now that with the success that we've had, that we can actually grow beyond me as the solo engineer here and empower people like Gene, our, our new lead software engineer and new hires that we're working on this year to grow the engineering team. Yeah. What is your total team size now? I believe we're up to nine. You know, a lot of a lot of other people helping kind of around that team. Sure. That's a nice small team size for north of three million in, in ARR. Yeah, it's a bit crazy because we Rock and I we're we're always trying to keep it like as efficient and lean as possible with the team size and I remember having conversations with him where it's like, man, if 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 Instagram sold to Facebook with like ten employees, like we should be able to do it with like five or six people, you know, <laughs> and, yeah. and uh, here we are, uh, you know, uh, I guess, uh, I guess over that already. So I'm really, really happy with, with the team. That's another aspect that is something that Rock and I, you know, focus on fostering a, a culture internally to the, to the Squadcast team that I think is a big part of what got us here. Mixing things up a little bit and, and circling back to something I mentioned at the top of the show, there's this quote from you that my assistant producer pulled from a previous podcast, I'm guessing, but you said our biggest inflection point was shelter in place. What happened there? You want to walk us through, if you even remember, like my memory of it was there were a couple of months where you like doubled one month. You were already doing, I think, tens of thousands in monthly recurring and you doubled and then you doubled again. 
Yeah, that's a pretty good lap around it. Was it a fun time or terrifying? <laughs> a little a little of both, honestly. Like, yeah. it's surreal. Just to kind of uh, zoom out for a second, it's surreal because of how many companies experience the exact opposite, the exact polar opposite. So that's not lost on us that we had experienced any amount of success. Like, we would have been happy standing still in an economic time of that, that magnitude. And to experience any amount of growth was just tremendously humbling. Like, it, it makes sense because we had always focused on this intersection of, you know, quality content production, but like remote focused and remote work. Our team is remote. So we didn't really have the challenges that a organ other organizations would have being focused on in person. So we were able to really just kind of hit the gas pedal and keep riding the wave as you know, hundreds of people, thousands of people a day signed up. And I had my concerns for sure. Because while we do our best to scale the technology and scale the team, there there can always be bottlenecks, even with that, even with that being the focus. Like we had certainly, it felt in hindsight, it doesn't feel like this, but in the moment it felt like the Squadcast infrastructure and technology had been to some degree over-engineered, but that was because we knew we were planning for this growth. And one of the weeks there, I did a scalability audit and ran that by you and some of the other mentors, I think Derek at Tiny Seed. And we were really trying to understand in the moment, like, okay, what do we need to get in front of to continue this growth? Because we didn't know where it was going to take us and how how the scale was going to evolve. Same with the team. Like uh, my brother Vince is the head of our our support team and also the head of our content production team. And it became very clear, we need to grow the support team to help onboard all these people we need to improve self-service and we identified a number of things that we quickly got into the product to continue double down on on self-service and really just trying to make sure everybody was experiencing the magic of Squadcast while all of that stuff was happening. So that's really where the roller coaster feeling, I think another way to describe it is like a, a time machine feeling of startups really uh, was the most extreme version of that that I had ever experienced. And uh, I'm so grateful that, you know, we rose to all of those those challenges and really provided, you know, the experience that people expected. And a lot of those customers are still with us today. So very proud of that. It's a good problem to have when you're just inundating the customers. It's still a problem. And I have learned firsthand and, and witnessed this and experienced it for agonizing months of scaling issues. And you had architected Squadcast in such a way that I remember when, when we did that scaling audit, I said something like, wow, you know, if you were going to build this today and tell me you didn't have any customers, I'd say you're gold plating this. But you gold plated it and it was the <laughs> right call because now you could scale so, you know, so far from where you were. I had never done anything like that. I mean, I had never worked on a, uh, an app the scale of Squadcast before. So that was another thing that we're very proud of. I mean, just to give you a sense here, in over 130 countries, we help people record in. And um, in 2020, we helped record over a decade of quality audio. So I think that that's uh, just staggering numbers that I personally as an engineer or you know, startup founder had, had never experienced. Yeah, for sure. So obviously the upside of that is, oh my gosh, our MRR is doubling and, and this amazing success. There had to have been a day, a week where it was just awful. And do you have like a worst memory of that five, six month period? You know, I don't. That's weird to say, to be frank, but I don't really. It was more just like, hold on. You know, it was just kind of like, hold on and and stay focused and just do the things that we can do. I mean, I remember like 
the team having anxiety and, you know, Rock and I talking about the ways that this could go wrong or that this could kill us. Like people don't talk about success as something that may may kill your startup, but that's totally something that can happen. And we were mindful of that. So we were just like, okay, how how far is this going to take us? You know, we have been working for this moment. We had done our homework that inflection points do happen and that, you know, we had not really had ours yet was kind of our sense of that. And then there's other things that are crazy to me uh, still, Rob, that like we'll say April, yeah, April 2020 was like still our highest record month out of, you know, nearly five years of working on Squadcast. But there's other inflection points that can happen as well. I mean, the demand for video throughout that whole thing was probably, to answer your question, the closest that I felt to it was like, wow, we're focused on like scaling and making sure everybody's like having success with their recordings and getting all their files and all that stuff. And yet more and more people are like very passionately requesting the ability to record video as well. So that's really where I'll say that the if we have had a second inflection point, it would be uh, January of 2021 when we launched video recording. The difference there is that One was kind of the world happening to Squadcast, but video recording, us launching that felt like, and that being our second highest record month when we launched video recording, was an inflection point that was kind of self-inflicted, self-made. And that felt really cool that we had kind of uh, gained that ability and the skills to really ride that wave. And that's, that's an interesting way that you frame it, where the world happened to you versus you being able to to put something in the world that you're at least in a little more control of. Yeah, I think I think Rock actually had that insight and you know, I think it's a brilliant one. And then also we suspected that that would happen with video, so we did a lot of testing to get it ready for prime time and we we knew that with the scale that we had that you know, on day 1 or to give you some real data on month 1, we helped record over 11 months of video. And, you know, it was essentially still in beta at that point. So we suspected that that would happen and it prepared for it. Right. And, and video recording was something you worked on for quite some time. And you were, you announced it publicly, I think maybe in, I don't know, was it the fall of 2020? Yeah, yeah. That's really when we started talking openly, like this is going to happen. And we'd gotten the structure in place, the infrastructure in place to make it happen. We had extended our intellectual property for progressive upload that I mentioned before. We had engineered that in a way that would uh, set us up for success when it came to video recording, which we, we knew about back then. So in some ways, that was kind of prerequisite work that we had been doing for for a while up to that point. But video has its unique set of challenges in addition to to audio. So that's really where, you know, a lot of companies only really get one opportunity to innovate and move the needle forward. I'm so grateful that with Squadcast, we had essentially two. We could start with audio. And then once people started talking about video, it sounded like a mirror conversation of what people were telling us in like 2016 about audio. It was just like, hey, we're not happy. The quality's not good. Sure. Yeah, there's some hoops we can jump through, but the experience is whack. And like, this would be very valuable to us. And kind of podcasting was evolving at the same time. Audiences taste are evolving at the same time. And there was a a real demand for that. We're really grateful that we could play a role in helping so many people grow their show, grow their audience from the roots in audio um, to video from there is, uh, is a really cool thing to have experienced. And I know that, that you wanted to get video out well, you wanted to get it out as soon as possible. And it felt to me like, I don't think we ever talked specifically about this, but it felt to me like, well, it's like shipping any big feature. It just takes longer than you want it to. 
right? And and I know you were doing a lot of testing. Tracy and Xander and I hopped in, you know, a one to, to to do some video recording and, and check it out and stuff. But was there a moment there where you were like, I hate this. Like, I, I hate my life right now. And you were thinking, you know, as it drags on for, for weeks and weeks of, of, I want to push this live, but we just, you know, keep having to circle back on things. Yes. And that is one of the things that there's this terrible quote, but like move fast, break things from Mark Zuckerberg. And you kind of lose that uh, over time as you gain customer trust, as you are more and more relied upon as the industry standard to really throw something against the wall like that could really rock the boat and disrupt, you know, what is uh, a reliable system for existing customers. So that's really where I was very mindful that we we did not want to do that we had worked really hard to establish this relationship and reputation of you know reliability and quality but also there's a lot of other elements to it that we don't necessarily think of as video recording but you played an instrumental role in this and and as did anar and the tiny seed mentorship is the pricing that goes along with a major product release i mean before we joined tiny seed rock and i had already developed pricing and you know to give credit to to rock he is a real student of saas pricing and i don't think enough founders are and that's a bit weird to me so he has really embraced that and we had developed and designed pricing that we thought was going to work and it probably would have to some degree but i remember having a conversation really early on when um, our batch started at tiny seed where you and anar reviewed that pricing with us and we're like Mm, you shouldn't do it this way. Like, let's do it differently and kind of start with a, a fresh sheet of paper. And I'm so, so grateful that we did because it's setting us up for success into the future, kind of future proofing our pricing as we grow and add more features. So that's another element that we were really kind of needed to get right when it came to the uh, the big update with V3. Yeah, pricing, as you said, very hard to get right, easy to screw up. And often not, and not even know it, not even realize it. You know, I've said pricing, it's the biggest lever. It's the number one lever in SaaS. It's, it's, you don't have to build a new feature. You don't have to build a new marketing channel. You don't have to add more leads, but changing your pricing can literally make a business that won't work into a wildly profitable one. Absolutely agree. And we had experienced that a bit ourselves with some experiments that we had done before joining Tiny Seed. But to be transparent, that was one of the major reasons where we're like, we knew enough to know that we didn't know enough. And, and that's really where it was like, all right, let's lean on, you know, experts, people who have been there and seen many, 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 many more like SaaS founders, pricing, all that stuff to really understand how we can create this win-win situation where we have a healthy, sustainable business that can grow over time, as well as provide a, an economical solution to, uh, to content creators at kind of any size of their show. So we've, we've talked a bit, you know, about Tiny Seed today. And I know that you received a lot of term sheets to invest in Squadcast, that there were, you had several offers and you decided to go with us. You decided to, you know, join batch two. And I'm, I'm curious why that was, because I know that, that you and Rock are, you're deep thinkers, you're very deliberate, you evaluate your options, you're not impulsive, you know, you do things, I don't know, in a very thoughtful manner. And I'm curious to hear, you know, a bit more about your thought process with deciding to go with us. I appreciate you saying that and and also for accepting us. Like it's been a real delight and pleasure to to learn from the Tiny Seed community, to contribute to the work being done by all these amazing founders, to see the next batch coming in. It's all very, very exciting that we can play a part in that. 
You're right, though. We are fundamentally, we were bootstrapped, like we worked day jobs for a year and a half and jumped in full time once our product was kind of paying for itself and experienced, you know, some some really great opportunities to scale that tends to get the attention of, you know, venture capital and seed funds and all of these things. We also got some really great advice from one of our one of our advisors, Scott Winston, that maybe contributed to this, uh, to your point that um, if you ask venture capitalists for money, they, they hear that all, all the time. We're in the Bay Area, we're, we're constantly going to events that have, you know, a representation or sponsorship by venture capital. And we use that to our advantage to learn from these people who have been places that we have not and been founders already and grown amazing businesses. So we didn't want to sacrifice that knowledge. Just because we weren't going to raise capital necessarily, we didn't want to sacrifice the the wisdom and the knowledge that often comes with that, you know, so-called smart money, emphasis on the smart. And that is something where, you know, we leaned on our advisors. So Scott recommended, you know, when you talk to these venture capitalists, you know, try to learn as much as you can from them. And don't ask them for capital, ask them for advice. And this weird thing will happen where they will offer you capital when you ask them for advice. <laughs> and that's totally true. We have seen that happen over and over and over again, and almost to a fault, I think. It's kind of predictable these days. So thank you, Scott. If you are interested in raising venture capital, I highly recommend that. We were not focused on raising venture capital. We looked at this as kind of an experiment with bootstrapping where we would essentially try to bootstrap for as long as we could. Worst case scenario, we increase the value of our asset and it should get easier and easier to attract capital. And at a point, we we hypothesized in the beginning that we would reach a point where the venture capitalists were coming to us and offering us term sheets. Um, that was surreal to imagine back then, but it has totally come full circle. So when it came to looking at ways to continue finding you know, knowledge investors is kind of how we we look at it. That's really what nudged us towards looking at the accelerator options. Like we had applied for Y Combinator and we had uh, applied for a number of others like Launch, Earnest. Like we, we had talked to the community around this with an emphasis on bootstrap because we knew enough about self-funding and customer funding that there's a real different kind of set of knowledge there. There's a lot of overlap, but at the same time, there's not. And there are unique challenges that come with bootstrapping. So because our experiment had continued and we still hadn't raised any venture capital, for us, it was more like, hmm, how can we get into an accelerator that is the the exact right fit for us? And I think there is only one tiny seed, just to be frank about that. And that has proven true for a, a lot of reasons. But the other thing was that we also like, I think at a point when we were talking over the term sheet for tiny seed, or even kind of entertaining the concept of no capital like we 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 were that focused on just the mentorship and the advice and the community that would come with that that was the more valuable part to us and if i can be real for a second rob hopefully rock's okay with me saying this but i believe we still have that capital in our savings account we haven't needed to touch it and that's that's kind of the best case scenario we have it but i i remember kind of walking in santa cruz with anar and <laughs> He just kind of looked at me and was like, there needs to be some capital. Like you can't like sign this paper and like not take some capital. You should, you should take some capital, even if you're not really planning on it. And it's just like, okay, that makes some sense to me. And, you know, I'm glad he kind of leveled with us. And there was a lot of leveling through the the kind of, 
I hesitate to call it even a negotiation, but uh, you know, the forming of our partnership and we really look at Tiny Seed as a, as a long-term commitment as well. So that was, I think our biggest concern was just like, okay, you, you know, we're big fans of Rob Walling. We had read your books. We had listened to this podcast, which is surreal that now I'm talking to you on it. You know, we had researched ANAR and the work at Discretion and all the, all the different things, Tracy and Xander, that all kind of came to life once we started engaging with your organization. But we suspected that you all felt like it was a long-term relationship for founders um, as well. Uh, because the the biggest indicator of that is the duration. The duration of the program was one year, which is longer than most accelerators. It was also a remote accelerator, which we are a remote first team. You are a active podcaster. So all of these things, and, and of course, your your heritage and background in, in Bootstrap SaaS, we also knew that we wanted to grow as a company more towards enterprise customers. So I think we're a bit of an outlier now having met the other founders in the the batch that we're a part of. As the majority of your focus is B2B, we are kind of B2C, B2B, B, you know, prosumer, so-called. And that's another area like, okay, we want to grow in this way. So these are all kind of factors for us in our consideration. But I think our our biggest thing was just like, okay, what about... What about the second year? What about the third year? I know, you know, I, I want to keep learning from Rob and Anar and the community. I want to keep contributing um, to the, you know, microconf and all this stuff. And that's been very clear to us that uh, we've made the right decision and so grateful that, you know, we could be a part of it. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously been a real pleasure, you know, working with you guys over the past, well, it's almost a year now. The batch is up. It's like, it's like five, six, five weeks, six weeks. Yeah. It went by so fast. <laughs> oh, I know. I know. Like the COVID, the COVID year 2020 felt like it was 10 years, but some of these things like this, you know, feel like they went by fast. But, you know, to your point, you'll be the the second batch that essentially graduates and becomes alumni and not that much changes. You know, there may not be the, you know, the twice a month mentor calls, but I still talk to folks on a weekly basis from both batches. You're still in the Slack group. You know, it really is a graduation to into kind of more, you know, more of the same with perhaps less recurring, recurring stuff. So yeah, and we had talked to founders that came out of batch one, that was another area that like, maybe if there had been like five batches or something like that, it would have been a little bit easier for us to validate some of these things just kind of on our own. But because Tiny Seed was a relatively new thing, which has got its perks too, right? That's proof of innovation, right? That that this is a relatively new offering in the space. So that wasn't necessarily like seen as a negative by us. It was more just like, let's talk to some of the founders. Thankfully, we knew Craig Hewitt, the founder of Castos and, um, you know, was in batch one and is a, is a member of the podcast community. And we had already had some rapport with, with Craig and we're able to kind of say, you know, are, is this what it seems? And, you know, is everything check out and kind of do a little bit of our due diligence, which I'm, I'm grateful that we did. I mean, it was super easy to find out that the answer was yes, these are real people and they are, uh, you know, deeply rooted in integrity and, you know, long-term thinkers. Yeah, and I think that, you know, that speaks to reputation, brand and reputation, right? And that's something that when we went to raise the first Tiny Seed Fund and when we went to open applications for the first batch, what did we have other than marketing words on a landing page, conversations with investors and our reputation, 
I mean, that's really what we went in on, you know? And, and the nice part now is TinySeed itself, much like MicroConf before it, much like Drip before it, it starts as this, this thing that no one knows about and has no reputation on its own. It has no brand. And, and same with Squadcast, right? Four years ago, you say, we're Squadcast. And people are like, well, what are you? But now it's like, th- you know, 13,000 customers. It's like you have, you have a brand. And a brand is what people say about you when you're not in the room, right? That's, that's how I like to think about it. And that, I think, is... There's a luxury of if you are doing, I don't know how to say this without sounding preachy, but it's like if you are kind of living up to your moral standards and the ethics of of how you believe things should be right. Like, hey, should people be able to cancel without calling a phone number? Should Do I refund if, if they got overcharged or if maybe they didn't use it for a month or two and they're not being ridiculous about it? Do I, you know, there's just certain judgment calls you have to make in business and whatever, you know, that's whether you're running a SaaS app or whether you're running an accelerator or a conference and that stuff it follows you around in both a good and a bad way. If you do a lot of good things, it builds, it builds, it builds, and your reputation builds in the positive. And, you know, similarly in the negative. And something I've really enjoyed already is to be able to say, because we're really almost wrapping up the, the selection process for batch three right now. And several founders, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty stoked about it. Several founders say, I'd love to talk to founders from batch one and two. And every time I say, go to our homepage, click on any logo. We have all, every, every company is on there. Click on any logo, contact any founder and ask them what they think. And I want to be able to say that forever. I want to be able to say that for 20 years. You know what I mean? And maybe that's too, a little too ambitious. I mean, sure, certainly at some point, something's got, you know, you, you wind up with a bad customer, right? Or a customer who's a little, you know, overly demanding. But the bottom line is that's a big piece of this game. And I think a lot of folks who get into, into building their own company, whether it's a SaaS company, whether it's info products, whatever they're doing, you think, well, I can get away with stuff. I can get away with something here and I'm going to have a short-term mindset around it. And in the short term, that will work. And in the long term, this space is pretty small. Our world is pretty small and the word gets around. Yeah, exactly. And another element that it just occurred to me was that we also had experienced some amount of growth before we applied for tiny seed or or were while we were applying more more accurately and that also kind of made it seem like a, a moving target that it, it could be tempting if you're a founder listening to this and you're like well why do we need an accelerator I'm already at like 50k MRR you know I challenge you to think was that was that something that you got to 50k MRR because of something you know amazing insight that you had and and put into practice or was that kind of the world happening to you like a mini inflection point? And when we really took a step back and looked at that, we realized that like we're still first time founders. We still have a lot of questions. We still have a lot of growth opportunities. We want to move towards enterprise. We want to do all these things. And we are experts in none of those things. And Tiny Seed had a lot of experts in those things. So that's the, the area where it's like you may be tempted to be like, well, we don't need it. We're good. But that's essentially where we were at for like a day or two. And every time we talked to, to you or Anar, it just became clear clearer and clearer to us that, you know, this is the right move, whatever size we're at. And uh, I'm so glad that we made that call. Sir, it's been a pleasure working with you so far. Looking forward to continued relationship with Squadcast. And it has been a pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you so much, Rob. You, you really honor me by uh, being able to participate in Tiny Seed, being a guest on your show. And it's been a lot of fun. So thank you so much. Absolutely. And if folks want to keep up with you on Twitter, you are Zach underscore Moreno, and we will link that up in the show notes. Two underscores. Oh, it is two <laughs> underscores. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for pointing that out. And then it is, is it Squadcast FM on Twitter? Yeah, Squadcast FM on Twitter, squadcast.fm. If you want to check out our website, we'd love to help you get started with your podcast and have really high quality audio for your audience.
Absolutely. All right, sir. Thanks again. Thank you, Rob. Thanks again to Zach for joining me on the show today. If this is your first episode and you heard about this podcast from MicroConf Remote last week, welcome. Hope you enjoy it and I hope you continue checking out the next few episodes. There's a lot of variety. This is not just an interview show. We have Q&A episodes. We have episodes where it's just me on the microphone talking about things that are on my mind around the SaaS and Bootstrapper ecosystem. We have startup and Bootstrapper news roundtables, all kinds of things. So I hope you will stick around. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Thanks again for listening. And I'll be back in your earbuds next Tuesday morning.